Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12. Andrew's going to open up in a word of prayer. Let's open up in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather together with our church family and look at your word, and especially to be looking at such an important theme and topic today of exemplifying brotherly love. We just recognize, Father, that that's something we oftentimes don't see a lot of in today's world, and that's something we as Christians need to be uh, just so diligent to be cultivating our lives. It's something that we can show other people the light of Christ by the way that we have love for each other and the way that we have love for all those around us. So just speak to us, to your word today. Help us to walk away with something in our lives that we need to change, and we can better uh, just apply this passage uh, each and every day. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my guess is you're a little confused. Uh, why are the three of us up here today? And, you know, I am too. Jeff looked at Andrew and I five minutes ago and said, hey, you're preaching with me this morning. So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You can laugh at that joke. Uh, we're just going to make our way through a passage of Scripture, the three of us together this morning. So we're going to start uh, with a couple stories. And I'm going to start with a self-incriminating story from my childhood. So here we go. Uh, when I was three years old, I was in the grocery store with my mom and my younger sister, uh, and I was pushing the shopping cart, and my sister was sitting in front of me, which meant, in essence, my mom was actually pushing the cart standing behind me. And, you know, we were smiling. We looked like that perfect, happy family. That is, until, for some reason I don't understand, I decided to chomp down with my teeth on my sister's hands as hard as I possibly could. And, I mean, you can picture the scene. She's gushing blood. She's screaming. I mean, there's this big scene happening in the, happening in the middle of pick and save, right? Well, we'll just say my mom wasn't thrilled with me at that moment. And I probably received a little bit of discipline when we got home later that afternoon. So there's a bad example of me showing brotherly love. So on that note, how about a good example of showing brotherly love? Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so there we were, my senior year of college, and I was going on a mission trip down to Mexico with a team of people, and we were going to be putting on a camp, and this coming uh, weekend, we were going to just a retreat center to plan out this mission trip, to plan our games, to plan our teaching times, all these things for our mission trip. Well, we're seven days away from this training retreat, and the retreat center calls us and tells us, hey, sorry guys, we double booked the facility for this weekend. You guys get the short end of the stick. You can't come here anymore. Not a good place to find yourself. So I did what every college student does when they find themselves in trouble. I called mom and dad. <laughs> so I called mom and dad, and here are words that parents never want to hear coming across the phone. I know this sounds crazy, but... I said to my parents, I know this sounds crazy, but do you think me and just 27 of my team members could come and stay at your guys' place this coming weekend for our training <laughs> retreat? My dad kind of chuckled a little bit, and he said, uh, we'll make it happen. So me, 28 of my uh, team members, we all travel across the state, get to my parents' house, and then I watched as they tirelessly worked an entire weekend to feed a small army to make sure that all of us either had a bed or an air mattress to sleep on for that weekend and just make sure we had the perfect environment for this training retreat. So whenever I think of an example of brotherly love, that's one of the stories that pops into my mind right off the bat. 
So we had a self-incriminating example. And then we had uh, Mr. and Mrs. Goodballet give us a great example. Let me offer an historical example. On February 3rd, 1943, the USS Dorchester was in a convoy with three other ships. They were heading to the UK, and when they got towards England, the three ships broke off, and the Dorchester headed forward onto Greenland. Unfortunately, by itself, it became prey. It came across a German submarine, U-boat 223, that found the Dorchester in its periscope, had a broadside from the port side shot, and sent a torpedo into the boiler room. The boiler room exploded. The Dorchester had 905 U.S. servicemen on it. Many of them, most of them, immediately died. Those that were still alive made their way up to topside. Now you can imagine with the ship hilting and tilting, you can imagine that it would be pandemonium up on top. But it was not. In fact, everything was calm. There were four chaplains. They had organized all the men. It turned out to be 230 that had survived. They made sure each man had a life jacket, and they assigned each man to a lifeboat. When they were just about finished and everyone was just about to get on the lifeboat, four additional servicemen made their way to topside. Unfortunately, all the life jackets were gone. So the four chaplains took off their life jackets and put them on the last four very startled servicemen. There were also only four more spots left on the lifeboats, and they insisted that these servicemen take those last four spots. The lifeboats were then launched, and the servicemen watched. Four chaplains put their arms around one another, sing praises to God, recite scripture, and go down to Davy Jones's locker. You can imagine the impact that had on our country. Posthumously, they were each awarded the Purple Cross, they were each given a Congressional Medal of Honor. And then in 1960, Congress created a brand new medal, the Four Chaplains Medal in their honor. These four have gone down in history as the immortal chaplains. And they give us an example of what it means to love others more than oneself. They give us an example of brotherly love. Today's text is all about brotherly love. I want to pick up and read it to us. I'm in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll read verses 9 to 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I don't know about you, but that last phrase of verse 9 jumped out at me, that the Thessalonians had been taught by God to love one another. Kind of an interesting phrase. 
We have to remember that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of us, takes up residence in our heart, and begins to transform the way that we live, begins to change our life. And one of those transformations is in our horizontal relationships, our love for one another. And in that way, God teaches us to love one another. It's exactly what John said in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this brotherly love is one of the foremost evidences of the Holy Spirit living inside of us as Christians. So then, then what is brotherly love? Well, it comes from the Greek word Philadelphus, uh, which refers to love within the family, for siblings, for parents, uh, for brothers and sisters. It's where we get uh, the name of the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which is a little ironic because it's not always the most loving city. You know, it reminds me of a story. In 1968, the Philadelphia Eagles were finishing a terrible football season, terrible. Uh, and they were playing their last home game. Uh, it was a cold, snowy, terrible, icy day at the end of December. Uh, and they were going to have Santa Claus come onto the field during halftime with the cheerleaders. But Santa didn't show up, right? So there's this 20-year-old kid, this skinny kid, that came to the game dressed up in this Goodwill Santa costume, right? Not impressive. Well, they decide to put him on uh, the field with the cheerleaders during halftime. The fans didn't like that. They start booing Santa Claus. And then they start throwing snowballs at him. I mean, so much for the city of brotherly love. But the authors of the New Testament, they take that word, brotherly love, a couple steps farther. Instead of just applying to relationships within uh, our, our families, immediate families, they use it to describe our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because brotherly love, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not just a sense of camaraderie. But true brotherly love, it's sacrifice. It's an action. And that's exactly what John said, uh, again, in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he being Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Hmm. Well, notice the first of those two verses. We know love by what Jesus did for us. He lived the life that we needed to live and died the death that we deserve to die so that we could have life. That is sacrifice. That is love. But you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, might not have the opportunity to give our lives for one another on a daily basis. So then in verse 17 of the verses we just read, John paints a picture of what it looks like to be sacrificial towards one another. And he says that we're to give generously to the brother and the sister who might be in need. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean that we can be generous with the financial resources that God's given us. Maybe there's a brother who just lost his job or a sister who's been dealing with a chronic illness and finances have been really tough. Maybe we could help them by helping pay their rent or buying some groceries or helping pay their gas. Being generous with our finances could mean donating to the monthly benevolent fund that we have here at Highland that goes to help people in our, uh, our church that are in need. But sacrificing for one another might mean giving an even more precious commodity, and that's our time. We don't always want to be generous with our time. Maybe there's a widow in our church that really could use some help with her yard work, or a friend of ours that just experienced loss, and they just need someone 
to talk with them and to listen and to hear what they're going through. Demonstrating brotherly love means we can sacrifice for one another. Because brotherly love, it's an action. It's a choice. We can demonstrate that towards one another. And you know, in verse 10, Paul demonstrates how the Thessalonians were exemplifying and excelling at exemplifying this specific type of brotherly and sisterly love. So look at verse 10 again. It says this, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. As we take a closer look at this verse, we're going to realize how radical and how rare it is to see this kind of love being exemplified in our current culture. Because Paul isn't just commending them for their sacrificial service and their love for people within their local church, but he says, you are doing this throughout all of the believers in the providence of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia doesn't mean much to us, but it was not a small or insignificant region of the Roman Empire at this time. In Paul's second missionary journey alone, he visited the cities of Neapolis, of Philippi, of Amphipolis, of Apollonia, and Thessalonica. Don't say those fast, they're hard. But so he visits all of these cities, all of which are cities within this Macedonian district. It's large. It's, it's, it's a very large area. So imagine it this way. It would be a lot like Highland Community Church being known for our brotherly love, our hospitality, our generosity throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. That would be pretty impressive. Not just for people within our church, but for every believer in the state of Wisconsin. That is such an amazing reputation for them to have built, but not only built, to also maintain. And within our text, we're not given the specifics of how they built and maintained this reputation, but we have some pretty good guesses of what that might have been like. Uh, Perhaps one of the ways they built this reputation was by being essentially the Airbnb of the first century, except they offered their homes free of charge to any traveler in need. You see, Thessalonica was the major port city within the region of Macedonia, and people oftentimes needed to travel there but didn't have the money to stay somewhere. Finding a place might have been hard, so it's likely that these believers were known for their southern hospitality. Their house was your house. Their door was always open, and they were welcoming people in and lovingly uh, ministering to their needs. Or perhaps they supported their brothers and sisters in Christ who were struggling financially or some of the smaller church congregations throughout the providence that didn't have the financial means that they did. Regardless of the specifics, it's very clear that they were famous for their merciful hearts and their sacrificial service to all of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they did this because these believers rightly realized that the call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ far transcends the brick walls of our church building. And there aren't a lot of churches in today's culture that really thrive at doing that. Far too often, churches are known for building nice, ornate, beautiful silos but not really bridges with other communities of like-minded believers. And that needs to change. We need to be better at that. We cannot put a geographical perimeter that limits the extent of Christ's command to love one another sacrificially in our lives. And then as we look at the end of verse 10 as well, we see another qualifier. We can't ever think that we have arrived when it comes to loving and serving one another. Paul says in verse 10, that is what you're doing for all the brothers, but you need to be doing this more and more. 
Even though the Thessalonian church was apparently setting the all-time record, they were doing great at loving, at serving, at uh, administering to each other's needs. Paul doesn't say, now you get to kick back and relax and take a break. He says, do it more and more. Don't grow complacent. In this life, love must always be practiced because it will never be perfected. So what does that mean for us? Well, that means whether you're 25 or whether you're 75, whatever it is, we need to be finding new and creative ways to be loving one another. And thankfully, Paul does it. Paul gives us some pointers in verses 11 and 12 for how we can exemplify this kind of brotherly fraternal love. Let me pick up and read a little bit more about brotherly love. In verses 11 and 12, it says, and do aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You hear the word quiet and you say, I wonder if this is an anti-extrovert text. Is this a text in which extroverts need not apply? We all know some of those extroverts. They're the individuals that have used up their share of words by nine in the morning, and then they begin to borrow from somebody else, and they go on and on. But actually, this is not an anti-Andrew muzzle text, as fun and as helpful as that might be. The word quiet does not mean to be silent. It does not mean to be a few words, not to be verbose. It actually means to be prudent. It means to be God-centered. It needs to, to think through what you're about to say, that it builds up others. Let me illustrate it two different ways. This is the word used in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, when it tells us to live quiet lives before those who are leaders in society. Now think about that for a moment. It doesn't tell us to criticize those who are leading us. It doesn't tell us to tear down those who are leading us, but to live quiet, that is prudent, God-centered, building up lives before those who are leading us. That has a lot to say about how we interact with those in leadership positions, even politicians that we would choose to differ from on many issues. How are you? How am I? How are we doing leading quiet lives, God-centered, prudent, encouraging, building up lives before those who are leading us? The same word is also used in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6. If you know that text, it's about wives who are married to those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And naturally, if you're married to a spouse that does not know Christ, you work for, you pray for, you desire that individual to come to know Jesus. But there's a right way and a wrong way to proceed. Perhaps a wrong way to proceed is to take a 35-minute message, and when you get home, you give the hour-and-a-half highlights of the 35-minute message, specifically pointing out those areas where your unbelieving spouse has fallen short. Or perhaps to share the top 10 verses of Scripture 
that he or she need to work on on a daily basis. Instead, the text tells us to live a quiet life, a God-centered life, a prudent life, an encouraging life that builds up others, that is a brotherly, sisterly love type of life. Paul might use this word in passages like Romans 15, 20, where it says, I make it my ambition. You see, we could use the word quiet and say, well, it's not an ambitious life. No, it's a totally ambitious life, but it's ambitious for the things of God. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. So a quiet life is an ambitious life that is God-centered that says individuals need to know about Christ, so I am going to risk my reputation to tell others about Jesus. Paul uses a similar word in Titus 2.14. He says we are zealous or we ambitious for the work of God. We're ambitious for good works. That's a brotherly love type of life. I want to be known, I know many of you already are, the type of individuals who have a reputation for being zealous with good works. That's a brotherly love, a sisterly love type of life. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, that we are to strive to excel, that we are to be ambitious to build up the church. Not for that silo that you talked about, but that we might be an impact in our community for God's glory. The entire text is about brotherly, sisterly love to reach out to the brethren and then Verse 12, to have a reputation in front of outsiders of doing good works. So then after Paul encourages us uh, to lead a quiet life, he gives us another way we can demonstrate brotherly love, uh, and that is what Paul says, to mind our own affairs. In other words, Christians should not be busybodies. A busybody is someone who gets wrapped up in the business of other people that really doesn't pertain to them. Because as Christians, we are first responsible for our own relationship with God before we start policing somebody else's relationship with God. Now, yes, as, as believers, we do have responsibilities to one another. Scripture commands us, for example, to bear one another's burdens, along with a lot of one another commands. But before we start getting involved in someone else's life, before we pull the speck out of a brother or sister's eye, we need to first remove the plank from our own eye. Think of it this way. Uh, if there's a little family of ants on the sidewalk in front of my house, they're really not causing any problems. But when that family of ants comes marching into my kitchen and starts eating my watermelon, we've got a problem, right? Because when an ant starts meddling somewhere it doesn't belong, it's annoying. It's frustrating. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote uh, the book of Romans, was writing to a group of Christians that were doing the same thing. They were meddling in one another's spiritual business, uh, and it drove a wedge in their relationships with one another. Listen to these words from Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Hmm. Now Paul clearly says that our primary accountability to God is for our own spiritual lives uh, before other people uh, in our Christian family. And we can demonstrate brotherly love for one another by providing the benefit of the doubt. So that when we don't know all of the details of a situation in someone's life, we can keep our mouths shut and mind our own business. This can mean a couple things. 
we probably shouldn't spread rumors about the age of our senior pastor, Andrew. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And it means some other things too, right? Let's not whisper about the couple that seems to be in the middle of some marriage struggles. Let's not glare at the guy wearing shorts to church. Let's not murmur about the woman who just can't seem to keep a job. Instead, let's give brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. Let's keep to our own affairs and mind our own business, because when we do that, we'll live as a family united. And when there's a unity within the family, that serves as a testimony to the world around us that we follow Christ. It reminds me of that song I used to sing growing up, that they, being the world, will know that we're Christians by our love. And that's the love that we have for one another. That's exactly what Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 13. He said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the world's critiques of Christianity is that we're not always the best at getting along. And unfortunately, there can be a lot of disunity in the family. But that is exactly the opposite of what Paul's talking about this morning. Brotherly love means that we provide one another the benefit of the doubt, that we live a unified life. And when we do that, we'll be a testimony to the world around us of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So let's, uh, let's quickly look at our third command in verse 11. It says this, and to work with your hands, work with your own hands. Now, first glance, that is a slightly confusing idiom that Paul is using there. What does he mean by working with our hands? Is Paul saying that you are in sin if you're working a white-collar job? Is Paul saying that physical and manual labor are the only godly forms of employment? Well, the answer to those questions is obviously no. Paul isn't so much prescribing a certain class or type of work here, but simply stated, Paul is saying this, do not be idle. Rather, we need to be people who are known for being industrious, hard workers. And it's very evident from the book of 2 Thessalonians that these believers needed this reminder because there was an epidemic of laziness and idleness sweeping throughout their community. It was so bad that in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul has to remind them of a command that he gave them and expected to be followed. And he said this, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Those are strong words, but Paul is giving us the other side of the coin. He's saying we are called to love generously, but likewise we are called to receive from others responsibly. And that's not how these believers were acting. They were acting far more like parasites, feeding off of the benevolence and the wealth and the generosity of their wealthier brothers and sisters in Christ. And fueling the sinful behavior was a skewed view of their eschatology, their understanding of the nature and the the timing of Christ's return. Circulating around their community was a dangerous belief that Jesus' return was so near, it was so imminent, that they could essentially just close up shop, they could forsake all their responsibilities, they could pull out the couch, grab a front row seat, and wait for Jesus to come riding in on a cloud and bring them back to heaven. Now, Obviously, we should excitedly anticipate Jesus' return. However, Jesus makes it really clear that when he returns, he expects to find us being industrious people hard at work because Christ has left us with a mission. He's given us a mission to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. 
He's given us a mission to use our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. And he's given us a mission to wisely steward all of the time, all of the talents, and all of the treasures that he's given to us. Instead of industriously working for the kingdom, these believers had fallen into a pattern of laziness and idleness. And a lazy lifestyle is incompatible with a loving lifestyle. Because by nature, a loving lifestyle means that I'm sacrificing my comfort and my convenience for the betterment, the advance, the the welfare of other people. And I can't do that if I'm not working. And Paul summarizes that point so well in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. He says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. That same word there. Here's the purpose, the purpose clause. So that he might have something to share with anyone in need. A major motivation of us being hardworking, industrious people is so that we can exemplify this Christ-centered love. So that we have something in turn to share with those brothers and sisters in Christ who have a genuine need. Our aim in life should be self-sufficiency so that we can be providers in our community rather than just having a desire to be a consumer. And that's what our passage closes with today. It says, do not be dependent on anyone. And what he means there is don't be financially dependent on anyone so far as it's in your control. And that does bring me to one clarifying remark I'd like to make about what this passage is not saying. This passage is a rebuke to people who are unwilling to work. This passage is not admonishing people who are unable to work. There are people out there who have a genuine desire to work and be industrious, but for a variety of very real and difficult circumstances, they're unable to. And we as Christians should be the first in line to lovingly support them and be generous and give them benevolent aid. And that's what Ephesians 4 and our passage is all about. We work hard so that we in turn have something that we can generously give to other people that are in true need. Let's seek to apply this a little bit. Um, Let's suppose that somebody has been serving the Lord for decades And they say to themselves, you know, it's time for the younger set to step up. I'm going to retire from this brotherly love stuff. At what time do we get to retire from brotherly love? Well, the short answer is never. So even though you've had decades, many decades of faithful (laughs) service for the kingdom, it's not quite time to pull out those golf clubs every day yet. There is more work. Just kidding, Jeff. There's more work to be done. Uh, But it is easy for us to carry over this retirement mindset into our spiritual lives. We think, I've taught that Sunday school class for 30 years. I've been involved in the church. I've done all of these things. I've earned my right to kick back and relax and coast my way to glory now and let the younger generation do do all of the work. That that sounds great on paper, but in Scripture, that's that's nothing we see. That you're never going to find that in Scripture. Remember our passage. The Thessalonian believers were excelling at love. And what does Paul say? He doesn't say take a break. He says do it more and more. So really, we should always be able in a year from now to look back and say, I loved people better. I served the body of Christ. I did more for the kingdom this past year than I did any other year in my life. So in Paul's mind, loving one another and serving one another, it never takes the summer off. It doesn't take a summer vacation. 
It doesn't have a retirement age where we get to just coast the rest of the way. As long as there's breath in our lungs, the call to love and to serve each other remains. Well, it's past nine o'clock, which means you're done with words for today. (laughs) I'm going to turn to Sam. The text tells us to lead a quiet life, and it tells us to mind our own business. Practically, what does that look like, and how do we do that and maintain this sisterly, brotherly love? Yeah. I think one practical way of leading a quiet life as Christians is to avoid gossip. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think something all of us have maybe dealt with at some point in our life. I had a friend who defined gossip in the following way. Let's say Pastor Jeff and I are talking about some issue in Andrew's life uh, behind his back, and we have no control over the situation. We would be engaging in gossip. But as people, we have that desire to be in the know, you know, to know what's going on around town. Um, And unfortunately, within the church, that can take the form of the prayer chain or prayer requests, to know what's going on in somebody's life just so I can pray for them, right? We have to be so careful within the church that the prayer chain doesn't turn into the gossip train. Because if someone wants, to know, wants us to know the specifics of what's going on in their life, they'll, they'll tell us themselves. We need to let go of that desire as Christians uh, to be in the know and to really avoid gossip at all costs. Earlier you mentioned uh, Romans 14. As you all know, Romans 14 is one of those chapters in which God says there are essentials and those essentials we have to stand for. But then there's peripheral issues where God may lead one Christian in one direction and another Christian in another. How do we live out Romans 14 in a brotherly, sisterly sort of way? Yeah, I found the following phrase helpful as I think of relating to other Christians. It goes like this. Uh, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. And in all things, Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian family, we have to be united on the things that matter, on the essentials. Things like salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Things like the inerrancy or the authority of Scripture. That's the foundation of what we believe. We have to be united on those things. But then in non-scriptural things, in non-essentials, that's what we call a gray area. One of those areas might be movies, for example. Now, granted, there's many movies that as Christians we should never watch. But there might be some movies that fall into what we consider a gray area. And I can't impose my convictions about movies uh, to another person because that would be elevating a non-essential to an essential. Because as Christians, we have to extend charity and grace in those non-scriptural things. That's great. In verse 11, which you went over, it talked about working with one's hands. And you gave us a good explanation but we do live in an industrialized world. What does this mean? Apply it for brotherly, sisterly love. Right. So in the world that we live in, we will find ourselves breaking this command to work with our own hands anytime we are falling into a lifestyle of laziness or avoiding responsibilities that we have in our lives. Now, a lot of us can probably struggle with that tendency to avoid responsibility without even recognizing it. So perhaps that is the husband who knows he's supposed to put his clothes in the laundry hamper, but he just leaves them strung all across the room because he knows his wife will eventually go over, pick them up, and put them into, into the laundry hamper for him. You, wait, well, you just got married. Did Megan put that in your notes? No, she did not. No, I... Hannah, Hannah actually paid it to me for preparation for you, so oh, I'm just okay. saying. 
Touche. But where Touché. were we? Uh, oh, yes. A teenager. Maybe it's a teenager whose uh, job it is that week is to clean their bathroom. But instead, they know that a, a brother or sister that hates the messiness will eventually uh, clean it for them, or they put it off hoping mom or dad will just cave or clean it. Or they finally do clean it, but only after being uh, asked multiple times and probably threatened with some sort of consequence. Uh, or I, I know that my generation in particular has a bad rap when it comes to work ethic, and not uh, all of the stereotypes about millennials are true. However, uh, however, there are a lot of young adults who are breaking this command, and instead of seeking to be self-sustaining, they are content to ride the gravy train from mom and dad as long as it goes on, right? I think of a news article I read a couple months ago about a 30-year-old man who was suing his parents because they were trying to evict him. They were trying to evict him because he hadn't had a job in years. He paid no rent. He didn't pay for the utilities. He used all of their groceries, and he refused to contribute anything to the household. And he was suing them, saying that he deserved at least a year to move out before they could evict him. And that's the time that he needed to get up on his feet, even as his parents offered to give him a few thousand dollars to get started. He was ridiculous, right? But that's the world we live in. Or I even think of an example of a soup kitchen I served in at a, a long time ago. And as I was washing some of the dishes that night, there was a man who had just enjoyed a meal that was coming up. I was getting a little backed up on dishes. And one of the supervisors at that particular kitchen asked the guy if he would want to come and help wash dishes after his meal. And he just kind of laughed and started laughing and said, no, no, that's not my job. I'll leave that for the champ in there. Anytime we find ourselves wanting the reward or benefit of something without having a desire to put in the effort, we'll find ourselves breaking this command of working with our hands. Thanks. Verse 12 says that one of the reasons we live out brotherly and sisterly love is that we might be an example and a witness to outsiders. I wonder if each of you could give me an example of brotherly, sisterly love among Christ's followers, maybe even across denominational lines, that is an example for those who may not yet know Christ. Well, I can think of one example. Since I moved to Wausau about a year ago, I've just been so impressed with the, the Christian camaraderie that exists in our community. Uh, in particular, every, every Wednesday, uh, Pastor Dan and I get to go to a, a prayer meeting for eight to ten different pastors from our area. And the purpose of the meeting is simple. We come and share stories of what God's doing in our congregations. We share prayer requests. We pray that the word of the Lord can go forward and out into our Wausau area. And it's just a great time of Christian fellowship and camaraderie. We come from a lot of different denominational backgrounds. We rotate what church we meet at. And it's just one of those instances where we're showing to our community that what unites us is more important than what divides us. Yeah. And you and I lead our young adult ministry here on Monday nights. We get between 60 and 70 young adults coming here on Monday nights. We study God's Word together. We serve together. One of my favorite parts is there's at least 12 different churches represented here on Monday nights. And it's just a great example of the body of Christ being united over the things that matter. Do you have an example, Pastor Jeff? Yeah, I think of uh, a group of senior pastors in central Wisconsin probably many of whom you could name. They come to Highland about every two or three months, and we have breakfast together, which uh, your offerings provide. And then we talk about leadership, we talk about preaching, we sharpen one another. 
uh, you probably could name many of the pastors across denominational lines that get together every two or three months, and we've been doing this for some time. In addition, uh, all three churches that I have pastored have been very generous with me in terms of buying books. So I have a pastoral library that's more like a scholar's library than any pastor's library. Uh, you might be pleased to know that your dollars are being used in many congregations. Uh, for instance, there's a congregation here in Wausau that's preaching through Exodus right now. All the commentaries out of Exodus you guys bought. Uh, that is not isolated. In fact, that's many times over the number of pastors that are using books that sit in my office until they borrow them to teach and to train the next generations of Christ followers. I think these are examples of how even you are participating in showing brotherly, sisterly love to the outside world, even across denominational lines. Well, we're really out of time, so let me uh, lead us in a closing word of prayer. Father God, uh, I thank you for what Paul has written in 1 Thessalonians 4 that reminds us to live out brotherly, sisterly love, not only so that we lead a prudent, God-centered, encouraging, quiet life, but that we're witnesses to those in the outside community, that we might be a church that impacts our community for the kingdom. We might be Christians that impact our community for the kingdom. Help us to live out these passages. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.